0: friends, welcome to the Having a Blast show. This is a pop-punk and emo podcast where we do deep dives on important albums from the scene. Today, talking to a good friend of mine named Kyle Ward. I've known Kyle for probably close to two decades now. We discuss one of his favorite albums and a favorite of mine as well. We're going to be discussing an album by the band Seosin, their self-titled record. We go into the history of the band, talk a little bit about both singers, the fact that they had a different singer at the beginning, as well as... Cove coming into the fold and recording this album on a major label. We get into the nitty gritty. Yeah, Kyle's a sweetheart. He's got a lot of stuff going on. He is in a band himself called Whatireck. Check him out on Spotify. They're on all the streaming networks. And he's also become a pretty prolific music producer himself. He records out of his house. He recorded another local band from here from the kansas city area called the way way back we discuss their new ep because he just finished wrapping up the production on that as well their new ep is called baggage or you're never going to leave it all behind and that is on all the streaming networks as well so hope you enjoy this conversation about seosin with my good buddy kyle ward
1: record so i use studio one i used to be a long time logic user and then probably three years ago now i switched over to studio one and dude it's one of those things where i think when it first came out it was kind of geared towards more like entry level recording and then they kind of souped it up over the years it's a it's a powerhouse really easy to use oh yeah it's super user friendly it's super intuitive cool and they've got a lot of stuff where you can uh customize it I guess for whatever you know DAW maybe maybe you're transferring from a different one Mm -hmm. to a new one so like say in my case Logic when I first started out on Studio One I used a lot of like the key commands from Logic until I was like you know I think I know Studio One well enough I'll I'll go ahead and learn the the Studio One controls but it's rad dude it's awesome
0: cool man one of my favorite producers uses Studio One now Aaron Sprinkle
1: oh really Mm -hmm. that's awesome yeah Yeah, his stuff is great. Yeah,
0: he's doing a lot of stuff from home right now, obviously, with COVID. And somebody was asking him about his setup at his house. And he said he uses Studio One. He hasn't looked back.
1: Really? Mm -hmm. Personally, I think with the way that things are kind of moving, I guess, in regards to Studio One, like they're really good about their client base and in like taking criticism like, oh, you guys did this really well, or you guys could probably use this feature and you know, the next update has that and they're super good. I appreciate that. Yeah. I've never had any issues with it, but yeah. Yeah. I think they've got like a free version. I think it's, oh shoot. I forget what it's called. I think it's maybe artist or something like that. So if you're interested, I think you can get it on their website for free for, I think you're just limited. You can't use like third party plugins or something maybe. That's cool. But it's
0: pretty rad. That's cool that they've got this open interface that you can just use and start plugging away. I think that's a great way to introduce your product. Yeah. Because there's probably a lot of people that need to be converted first, right? Oh, totally. Is it raining there in KC?
1: It's just starting to. Like, it's kind of sprinkling a little bit, but it's not full. Well, I guess I take that back. (laughs) I was just driving a little bit ago, and it was a little bit rainy. Let me check something real quick. I think I've got a windscreen. I keep getting the plosives going on. So give me one second.
0: <laughs> Go for it, man. No worries. I still get a lot of the, the plosives.
1: Try to. Uh, I try to eliminate that as much as possible. I mean, I don't really care uh, most of the time, but it's funny when I uh, start to become hyper aware of it. I feel like I almost do it more. Yeah. So and like beatboxing almost. Yeah.
0: That's when you really start to hone in on it when you're listening back. That's when it's like, oh crap. Okay.
1: (laughs) You're like, God, why was I so obnoxious? (laughs) (laughs) So many P words. (laughs) So many P words. Who knew? Find one? I found one. Yeah. Oh, totally. Yeah. I, <laughs> I, uh, I remember my mom got pissed, uh, several times cause I, you know, not knowing <laughs> what is the, 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 the purpose. preferred, why are you doing this? Why, what are you doing? Is this like a fetish thing?
0: <laughs> That's an introduction to recording. I think, I think every makeshift recording studio in your home comes, uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, with at least one pop filter made of pantyhose.
1: <laughs> if you haven't, then you haven't done it right.
0: Yeah, exactly. It's like sleeping on floors when you do your first tour or something. It's just a prerequisite. Yeah. Rite of passage.
1: It's like a rite of passage. Yeah. Yeah, man. Seosin. Yeah, dude. How about
0: them Sayosin boys, right? So good. (laughs) I want to talk about a bunch of things, but I figure if if I'm going to do like a quote-unquote music podcast, pop punk, emo, post-hardcore, indie, whatever you want to call the albums that we discuss, I always remember that the self-titled Sayosin, that's like near and dear to your heart. And I love that record too. And I think that was a pretty pivotal record, pretty important record for our scene. Oh, totally. I figured we could just start with talking about that but I also want to ask you about everything you got going on and I want to talk about your process of production and recording and even with what a rack yeah or what a wreck. I almost said what a rack <laughs> what a rack <laughs> That's a that, was the, uh, that was the
1: other choice and we we were like well let's keep it maybe more commercial I don't know <laughs> we'll,
0: th- we'll throw that in the maybe pile in the maybe pile I want to know about your songwriting process too because I know you're working on I work yeah assume you're working on new songs. You've kind of posted snippets here and there. And I'm always kind of always keeping a keen ear on what it is that you're up to because I'm a fan of what you do. So cool. Yeah. So Seosin, the self-titled. The first thing I wanted to ask, do you remember the very first time you ever heard Seosin? Because I actually have a very visceral, vivid memory of the first time I did, but I want to hear yours.
1: Yeah. Very first time I heard Seosin was shortly after translating the name came out and so that was, what, 2003, mm-hmm. 2004, I can't remember.
0: Yeah, oh three.
1: And it was one of those things where I had heard it when it came out, and then I didn't really hear it for a couple years later, mostly just because at that time there wasn't, like, YouTube or, like, Shazam or anything like that to really find stuff. But a buddy of mine whose older brother, really into all that kind of stuff, if you remember the band I Desire... Mm-hmm. It was Jesse Lovell, his younger brother, Matt. But I remember listening to that and being like, whoa, this is really cool. And I remember it really kind of resonated with me because I think it was the first band, I mean, other than like maybe Led Zeppelin or something like that or Queen that had a vocalist that had like a higher register. And I remember at the time (laughs) in middle school, I was kind of like made fun of for being into like singing and uh, having a high voice and sounded like a girl, quote unquote. And so I remember me being like, dang, this is awesome. Awesome. And then fast forward to when Self-Titled came out, or I guess before that, they had like, what was it? The Grey EP mm-hmm. was the first one with Cove. And then that was really when it made a huge impact. I was like, what? This is insane. That was with Barrier Head, right? Yeah, it was that. And I'll be honest, it's funny. Uh, I'm probably one of the only people to say this or admit this, maybe. I don't know. But I remember wearing out translating the name. And then when that first EP with Cove came out and then self-titled, I remember oh, I didn't know they switched singers. And I was like, whoa, this dude actually, I feel like this guy got better, which is probably an unpopular opinion considering not to say that Anthony Green is not great because he's incredible. But I remember being like, whoa, they're two different singers, but they sound so similar. And I remember being like, man, his vocal timbre or whatever changed a little bit. It sounds a little bit better. I don't know. But yeah, that was, I guess, my first experience.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And of course, we're definitely going to talk about the differences in the vocal tonality of those two guys. Similar, but obviously not the exact same. Different people, so it's going to be slightly different. Totally. I've come into contact with people who like Cove more than Anthony. I think Anthony's vocals are kind of polarizing in the same way that Coheed and Cambria. Claudio, his vocals are polarizing. I think some people really, really love it. And some people, for whatever reason, they just don't jive with it. They just think it's too high. Totally, might be high to the point where it's even grating on their ears or something. There's a lot of yeah. people out there that love Rush and really appreciate Rush, and then you've probably run into several people in your lifetime who can't stand Rush, absolutely hate Rush. Totally, I've met yeah, I've met Rush cultists, and I've met people that <laughs> absolutely despise Rush and say he sounds like a gremlin or a leprechaun or something. <sighs> So, it makes sense, your designation of the differences between the two vocalists, because I kind of thought the same thing. When I remember the first time I heard Cove's vocals, I thought, okay, it's like Anthony, but it's a little bit more polished. It's a little bit more streamlined. I thought he had more of kind of a universal tone. Totally. It was high, but it wasn't, there was something about his vocal delivery that just seemed a little bit more, what's the right word? Digestible? Yeah. For lack of a better word. I
1: can agree with that.
0: Because I think people who love Anthony really love Anthony and they love everything he does. They love everything he does mm-hmm. with Circa. They love all of his solo stuff. So I think tone wise, there's just some people who have ears that really gravitate towards Anthony. And then some people might say that Cove sounds like several other singers. I think Anthony might have yeah. a little bit more uniqueness to his voice, to his vocal inflections, and just the way he sings in general. And even with some of the grit, you know, they both kind of have the ability to scream, but there's something about Anthony's scream that's kind of unique and almost shrieking you
1: know oh totally yeah totally i've never heard i mean yeah i don't think i've ever heard another screamer if we're just classifying his voice in screaming i don't think i've ever heard someone quite like his maybe similar ish but he's definitely got a very distinctive vocal quality overall for sure
0: yeah absolutely i just i go back and think of the song get out on blue sky noise by circa oh dude
1: that's my favorite album of theirs
0: me too there's something about that, too, because I think you and I, we probably just gravitate more towards the polished, major label-sounding, big, epic recording. Probably. <laughs> yeah, because I know that's probably an unpopular opinion if you're in a circa, you know, fan circle or whatever. If you say yeah. Blue Sky Noise is your favorite album, people are going to look at you like you're weird. I always say my favorite Bad Religion record is the Grey record, and I think that was their second mm-hmm. major label record, and it's probably one of their most polished records. And I'm sure a lot of people, Bad Religion fans, would probably be like, dude, you're an idiot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah, it's funny because I I guess while we're on the topic, I've always felt like Anthony Green really i feel like Circa survive is the perfect fit for anthony not that it's not for seosin of course but i feel like with what anthony does well he's really there's no limitations with circa in him it's like the perfect canvas for him to throw the paint at the wall or whatever but yeah i feel like with whatever i don't know i think that was a major label release with blue sky noise i think it was like atlantic or something but yeah i remember hearing that and be like dude this this is like awesome I remember hearing get out on the radio and be like what is this circa like this is this is sick but, but yeah I feel like with Cove and Seosin I felt like there was something really special with Cove in his era verse Anthony but I'm sure we'll get into like now present time seosin with him rejoining but, but yeah I've always kind of looked at circa as in like that's where Anthony should be and like Cove really is phenomenal in Seosin. but they're both great
0: yeah different people but they've both got a collection of art at this point you were right it was atlantic that released that and i'm looking at the wikipedia the producer i forgot his name david bottrell he's done a lot of really big stuff not really seen stuff but he's done a lot of big albums but yeah i love that record i think it sounds amazing the bass tones on that thing even for 10 years old dude yeah, I totally agree with you. If you ever listen to an interview with Anthony, he always talks about how he's this weird kid from Pennsylvania, kind of an artsy kid. And mm-hmm. he was kind of thrust into a different world with the West Coasters that was the other members of Seosin. And I've heard him say mm-hmm. in interviews before, I don't know if you've ever listened to him talk about his time in Seosin. He talks fondly about it now, which is cool. But he, yeah. he talks about how he was kind of a fish out of water or he felt like a fish out of water. And he felt like... In some ways, he kind of stuck out like a sore thumb in that band. But I think you're right. I think Circa, the project itself lends very well to a vocal delivery like his that can kind of go all over the place. They always kind of reminded me of kind of like a scene Radiohead And I think maybe that's kind of what they're going for. There's not many... I can totally see that. Yeah, they don't have a ton of concrete song structures. It's kind of like just an amalgamation of parts. They have some songs that have choruses, but the guitars literally never do the same thing. They're always doing these ambient guitar interludes that kind of complement each other, but it's just different. You know, Seosin has a little bit more streamlined songwriting elements and progressions and things, and they, they kind of stick to the formula, the verse, chorus, verse... Chorus. Yeah. Bridge Chorus. It's funny because I remember the first time I ever heard seosin like you, I, the first time I, I ever heard them was translating the name. And we were actually on tour with Game Time. Oh, right on. And I remember exactly where I was. I was sitting in This venue called Knickerbockers, which is in Lincoln, Nebraska. Did you guys ever play there? Oh,
1: yeah, I've heard of that.
0: Okay. Yeah, it's not there anymore, unfortunately. They closed a couple years ago. But we were playing with the JV All-Stars that night. And I remember somebody, I think it was the sound guy, he was playing it through the speakers. And we were just waiting. We were just kind of like sound checking and stuff and waiting for the show to happen. And I remember hearing it and I heard some of the riffs. Who is this? This sounds incredible. And it's just the recording sounded really good for the time, too. You know, it was end of 2003, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And it was very much... Akin to the first time I heard Rufio because I really just connected to the guitar Oh yeah, dude. The guitars just stood out front and center to me and I think I heard Seven Years, that was what he was playing on repeat and I thought the verses were really catchy and there was bands like that at the time, you know, Finch and Story of the Year, they had already kind of burst onto the scene. I think Story of the Year, their record had been out. So post-hardcore was definitely about to just explode and yeah. we were all big fans of Thrice and all that. But I think that was the first time I heard the that type of heavy, aggressive music with sort of this angelic high vocal registry on top, you know, and it was just really catchy at the same time. So it just hooked me immediately. I love that EP. Dude, totally. And I think the first time I heard them with Cove was, I don't know if you remember, but they released like a live, it was like a live video. And you're right, this is before yeah. YouTube, but there, there was a live video where you could see Cove singing. Mm-hmm. It was the demo version, the version that they put on the gray EP of Your Head. And I remember you, you just got a, a sense of what they were like live. It was really quick edits and everything. Yeah,
1: I think I remember seeing a on like Fuse or something. Maybe AbsolutePunk.net posted it or something too. Yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah. Man. But I thought, okay, he's a good looking kid. And that's if they put out a, a full-length record, I would imagine they're going to do very, very well. <laughs> yeah. Because at that time, since his fail, Hawthorne Heights, they were all coming out of nowhere and just kind of blowing up so okay so then on to the self-titled record do you remember the first time you heard that was that something because i'm trying to think what they released first i feel like they didn't release voices first they released something else
1: yeah i remember so i'm gonna expose myself on how much nerd knowledge i have on this subject but please do so yeah so they had their ep they had a bunch of demos for they had i never wanted to on that that was on that ep that first DP with Cove. It was like called New Angel was the demo. I think it was an, like partially instrumental, if I'm not mistaken. It's been a few years since I've listened to it. But, but yeah, they had that. And I think, of course, Bury Your Head. And then there was another song... Were
0: they releasing instrumental demos at that time Just to kind of hype things up I feel like they were
1: I think they were See what's funny is I think at the time Bands don't do the same things that they did at at that time Like bands would just kind of release stuff whenever And now it's very much more methodical And like okay well we have to release this on like Tuesday morning When traffic online is slow And all that stuff Like it's so much more forethought going into it Whereas before bands would be like Oh we got this cool new demo Let's post it on MySpace or Pure Volume or whatever. That's
0: interesting. I don't want to derail you, but I think what you just said is interesting because I actually think you're right in certain respects. There are people that are very methodical with how they release everything now, just in the age of social media and marketing and branding and everything. But you know who does a good job of doing the opposite? And this is just something that I've just recently come into contact with. I didn't realize this was a thing. shows how disconnected I am from everything, but I've been listening to uh, podcast where he's been interviewing a lot of types like these kind of underground artists so for lack of a better term rappers emo rappers oh totally people that are recording stuff on GarageBand band and their phone and then just immediately releasing it these are the people that are releasing 100 songs a year and they're throwing them up on spotify and they're making 30 to 40 grand a year just on their spotify revenue because they just they're cultivating an audience on the underground and they're just releasing stuff totally kind of ad hominem As soon as it's done, even if it's rough, even if it's wrong, you know, technically wrong from the standards of we might look at the raw tracks and how the hell did you even make this? You know? Yeah. They're just kind of making do with very limited gear and and equipment and things. It's almost like you've got sort of a DIY ethos being translated or transferred from maybe late 90s to now because there is such a low barrier to entry when it comes to recording totally and just putting out songs and everybody can have a spotify account now you know you can just yeah you could literally hum into your phone on the voice memos and put it up on spotify if you want to yeah so getting people to listen to you and just being very prolific and getting your work out there there seems to be like some artists that are doing a good job of really just pushing tons of stuff out and then as time goes on they, they kind of refine their process and stuff gets better
1: yeah i think it's interesting. Like now now, as you said, rappers now are kind of like, I guess, SoundCloud is like the, the new MySpace in a way or whatever. Yeah, there's totally the the kind of change, I think, partially because it's easy to record stuff now, whereas, you know, at the time of translating the name, if bands wanted to record, they had to go to a studio and pay out the butt for a demo that sounded okay. Thousands. Um, or know somebody. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think it's interesting now how you can get a really good sound post it same day. You could record a song and mix it and post it same day and have it sound really good whereas 15 years ago or whatever it was a lot harder. It was almost impossible. Yeah. And yeah, especially with with just like the technology of the time and just being able to do that. I think it was just much slower but also just so much more expensive.
0: So back to nerdiness. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
1: But yeah, as far as the first time I heard self-titled, I had seen the music video for Bury Your Head, and then I think it was Voices was the first single off self-titled, and I think they had. It was kind of similar to Bear Your Head, but they had a r- original music video for Voices. It was, I think, filmed on Warp Tour that year, and I remember check that out, hearing that, and then being like, "Dude!" Because I remember instantly that same kind of excitement from Bear Your Head, being like, "Whoa, this sounds really good!" To suddenly having this major label release full production commercial sound voices being the powerhouse of a song that it is it's like dude instantly that was like cataclysmic i was like dude this band is the shit
0: (laughs) you were stoked to hear the rest of the record at that point right
1: Oh, yeah, totally. And I totally didn't have money at the time to buy their album. But one of my friends, his mom, basically just had like this allowance. And so we would go to like Hot Topic and stuff. And I, I coerced him to buying that album. And then I think I borrowed it, but never gave it back. <laughs> Shout out to Dugan um, for, for that.
0: <laughs> yes, thank you. Got to love all the friends that have loaned us stuff over the years that we still have somehow. Yeah, I used to live with three friends and I have a big movie case as if anybody needs a case of movies now in the land <laughs> of streaming, but periodically I'll go through it and I'm just looking at it thinking none of these movies are mine.
1: Oh, that's awesome.
0: So I need to give those back. I, we, we need to have like <laughs> a, a potluck and do a movie exchange. Although I don't think anybody really cares about DVDs anymore. <laughs> They're like,
1: eh, it's on Netflix.
0: Yeah, exactly. So I'm just looking at the Wikipedia because everything on Wikipedia is true. And looks like it's sold. <laughs> I always find this interesting. It's sold. It came out in 2006. It came out on Capital. And I don't really know the guys in Seosin. I don't know them personally, mm-hmm. which the reason I mentioned that is because I wish I knew what their story was leading up to the release of this, getting signed to Capital, because I know Capital is who signed Yellow Card and I know exactly what happened from them being signed to Lobster, even from them just initially going out to California, getting signed to Lobster, and then immediately getting signed to Capital, them licensing the EP through Fuel by Ramen, and then releasing Ocean Avenue on Capitol. I would love to know what the situation was leading from translating the name that was released independently, I believe. They yes. pretty much recorded it themselves, right? At that point, Bo was recording, mm-hmm. doing pretty much everything. Yeah. He's, he's mentioned that in interviews. And then I'm sure that three-year process, they were probably being hit up by a lot of labels, a lot of major labels. I'm sure a lot of people wanted them at that point.
1: Yeah, I think I saw or heard in an interview uh, from Bo that I think they were, I want to say they were talking to quite a few labels and they, I wish I had researched before the podcast to be able to say more precisely, but yeah, I think they were scouted by quite a few and I think Capital, if you watch their like behind the scenes of the the self-titled, you can tell they're very passionate, (laughs) but I think if I'm not mistaken, I think they had... I think Island Def Jam or something was one of the... Or Island records at the time
0: makes sense they were trying to grab all the post hardcore bands at the time so
1: yeah i think they were one of them it's crazy that they went with a major label considering you know their their style i guess but that just goes to show at the time that wasn't really unheard of for bands to of that genre to be signed because that was booming at that time now that would be really odd for a post hardcore band for their first release to be signed to a major label so
0: yeah it was a different time i remember it's funny (laughs) because i remember the lead Nineties and the very early two thousands, two thousand to two thousand two. That was kind of a a period where everybody wanted to get signed to Fat or Epitaph. And then in the very early two thousands, everybody wanted to get signed to either Tooth and Nail if you had any religious leanings or Drive Through Records. Drive Through was really popular. And then yeah, subsequently you had Fueled by Ramen and then Fearless and Hopeless and. All those labels that kind of had their ebb and flow with pop rock or pop punk or post-hardcore. But what was really interesting was there was a period of time from maybe 2002 to about 2006 where you had a lot of these bands that were really holding out for a major. They wanted to go major. They wanted to just basically hit the stratosphere and just immediately go into the ether of popularity as quickly as humanly possible. Yeah. I don't know. I don't really understand why that was. Maybe it was just because there were certain bands that were doing it. I remember the format. Do you remember the format? Dude, I loved the format. Yeah, they're great. And I love fun too. And the format's mm-hmm. got some great stuff. But I remember in 2001, they released a demo and Vagrant wanted to pick them up. Drive Through wanted to pick them up. Fuel by Ramen wanted to pick them up. And they were basically saying no to all those labels. They were holding out for a major label specifically. That's what I was being told. Oh, wow. That's cool. And they toured with Yellow Card. It, it may have been Yellow Card that told me that at that point, that they were really holding out for a major. There was a couple of bands that were kind of like that. And, you know, I don't exactly know what the motive was there, but maybe they thought, okay, we're already a more pop-oriented band, therefore we want to get as popular as humanly possible quickly. And with Seosin specifically, it is kind of odd that they were on a major so quickly, especially with the record that they wanted to make. You mentioned the making of The Self-Titled, in that they talk about how they want to write riffs, they want to have tons of really interesting drum parts and drum fills, and they want to have interesting songs. But at the same time, there's a lot of pop sensibilities in that record. The melodies are very poppy, they're catchy. You could tell melody was a huge concern and Howard Benson was really trying to to capture and record good melodies with Cove. So it is interesting that they signed to a major. I'm wondering if they would have been a band nearly as long as they were without it. Because I think that was probably a good record to come out on Capitol at that point, even if it didn't necessarily go stratosphere levels. You know, they didn't sell Mm -hmm. millions and millions of records. But I mean, 800,000 records is kind of a lot for three years removed from the Napster era. Yeah. Do you have a favorite song on the record or favorite songs?
1: Oh, man. Whenever I listen to this album, I'm totally an album listener. I don't usually listen to just, you know, one song and then skip to another one. And this one's perfect because it does have those songs that kind of flow together, kind of like Abbey Road. I don't know, man. It's tough. I love them all for different reasons. I could probably name a top three. I would say probably it's far better to learn. Dude, that intro is just insane. And the drums and all that probably great
0: intro and great song i love the chorus on that song
1: dude and it really kind of sets the tone for the overall and i know that they uh the at least with cove they would start every show with that, so you can't really go wrong with that. As I'm looking at this list, I'm like, man, I don't even know if I can name the top three. <laughs> um, I will definitely say that Let Go Control, one of their Japanese bonus tracks, is so sick, and I wish that it was part of the normal rotation, I guess, for the track listing. That one, I would say, is is definitely up there. It's like a deep cut, I guess. And then probably Come Close, I think that one, just the chorus just, like, slaps, dude. <laughs> but probably those 3 I could probably interchange any of them but probably those 3 those are great songs great tracks what about yourself
0: it's difficult because I think you're right I think this album is really cohesive and there's a lot of continuity to it I like this record because it does have a good flow to it all the songs feel similar to one another but they do kind of step out of bounds a little bit cuz you hear a song like it's far better to learn and then you hear a song like it's so simple they yeah if you were to put those two next to each other. I don't know if it would be as cohesive. It's almost like Sleepers is good right in between. And, yeah. Or no, I'm sorry. I'm thinking of Finding Home. Finding Home and it's far better to learn. If you were to put those right next to each other, you'd hear a little bit more of, I think, a difference. But because you have those songs in between, it flows really well. Yeah. I think Voices is a really good first single. It's got a great chorus, big anthemic chorus. It's interesting because I wonder if, if it's far better learned, if they learn. If they had done like a radio edit of that song, I wonder if that would have been a good single for them because I feel like that chorus is just so good. It just really hits.
1: That would be interesting to hear if they did do a radio edit. That intro probably wouldn't be what it is. Potentially, that's an entertaining idea.
0: I feel like they'd whittle it down just a little bit because it's four minutes in length. yeah. Which I didn't realize it was that long, but it's probably just because of that intro is probably close to a minute of itself. But the one thing that I always go back to, I think Spotify, the algorithm, my Spotify algorithm really likes this song. It plays I Never Wanted To a lot. Yeah. And that bridge when there's that swelling guitar part kind of swimming through the really heavy guitars and then Alex is just doing that crazy fill through the whole thing. Yeah, <laughs> That whole culmination of a song is just so expertly done. And that's something that I think is interesting, too. You listen to Alex, his drumming on this record. Dude. It's just unreal. And the fact that Howard Benson, a massive producer, even at that time, even under those circumstances. I mean, he had, the year before, he had done that big All-American Rejects record that just yeah. sold a ton of copies. For him to be willing to just say, no, you can go ahead and play what you want to play. And I think I watched that, the making of documentary on YouTube the other day. And he said he mixed one fill, one drum fill. Yeah.
1: Isn't that insane? That's
0: nuts. That's gnarly. I feel like you couldn't get away with that now. I don't know if you'd have any other bands really attempting that on a major label, but you can just tell they didn't have any major label execs in the studio listening, which is kind of cool.
1: Right? Isn't that wild? It was just kind of a free for all.
0: Their NR guy would have been, whoa, this is way too busy. You're never going to get this on the radio.
1: Yeah, but I think that's a testament. It's
0: funny too, because they have the same AR as Yellow Card, Louis Band. Oh, did they? So. Yeah, same guy that signed them, I guess.
1: Well, that would make sense. That would make sense since it was the same label. I think that's a testament to just how tasteful the drumming is because if you can... Pull off being busy and have it also be easily like digestible for like just a, an average listener. I think that's crucial.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's like Travis Barker, you know, I think Travis Barker, if left to his own devices, he might be a little too busy at times, but he grooves at the same time. His drumming really serves the song. And I think sometimes because the rest of Blink-182 is so simple, you can have a musician like him kind of shining in the background and really adding some flavor to each song and some nuance and some personality. And that's kind of what I hear with Alex. The guitars are definitely ripping through this entire album, but I think you're right. I think Alex is tasteful in what he does. He's just got so many interesting drum flourishes throughout this whole thing. I'm just thinking of the verses of voices and a lot of cool hi-hat
1: work. Oh, totally. The hi-hats in that? Yeah. I remember th- long before I ever did any production stuff, I remember listening to that and be like, dude, I've never, because I think most people would do something like more intricate on like the kick pattern, but the fact that he did like the 16th notes, I don't know, a very, very interesting, uh, very identifiable drum performance, especially on the on the verses for sure.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And then the guitars, the record, I thought it was interesting to hear Howard Benson say that he basically just let Bo and Justin record their own guitars and Chris's own bass. So they were so well versed with Pro Tools at that point. They were literally in this major label studio, this million dollar studio. Now you guys can do it. (laughs) What? How is that even possible? That's so sick. It's pretty cool. I mean, you, you watch them track and you can tell they cleaned it up. Yeah. They definitely, they took liberties with mixing and they cleaned it up as much as possible. They made it super pristine and they probably took tons of takes so that they could cut off the back end and the front end of the guitar so it was just seamless. I mean, from a production standpoint, what are your thoughts on this record? I mean, I know that's kind of an open-ended question, but maybe we can just take it down to the guitars. What do you think of the guitars as far as how they're recorded and how they're mixed?
1: I mean, I know they used a Hughes & Kettner triamp for all the guitar tones, which Bo at the time was like really... Into, which is just for those that aren't gear nuts, it's just like a really high gain. I think it's kind of similar to like an angle head, anyways. Probably too much nerdiness, but but yeah, I think it's crazy because I guess when I think of bands that usually overdo it, it seems to me. Not that I've ever worked with a band that's overdone like guitar stuff, but I feel like maybe it's because I'm a guitar player that it's easy to overdo it with, oh, I'm going to put this guitar part and this guitar part, and the fact that they had the artistic liberties of just be like, oh, yeah, whatever. The fact that, I guess we don't know what they could have possibly removed, but I feel like they did a really good job of having it be deliberate, I guess is the best word, like very deliberate guitar parts that didn't overdue or just kind of like noodle around, especially when you've got vocals and complex melodies and stuff like this album has, and then drums and all that stuff. I think they did a really good job with keeping it simple when it needed to be simple and interesting when it needed to be interesting. I wish that I, it's funny, I've always wanted to learn the guitar part for Collapse. I've always felt like that riff is just so sick, but I put it in my own head of like, oh yeah, I could never play that. I've attempted it a couple times, but uh, yeah, I think this record, guitar-wise, is just insane.
0: I guarantee you, you could play it. Practice makes perfect, Kyle. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> keep, keep on practicing. That is a rad riff. I mean, there's riffs for days on this record, but I feel like everything you you could do easily. And you may already know this, so I don't want to like <laughs> say that you don't already know this, because you probably know more about this record than I do. But they probably used open tunings on a lot of these riffs to make them easier to play. <laughs> I mean, maybe not. They might have. You can see him playing in the studio, but it's so funny because sometimes I'll catch these bands that I've looked up to forever and then you kind of look at how they play these things and you can tell they've got like a specific guitar live for one song and it's like <laughs> oh okay so they just changed the tuning so that riff is a lot easier to play I mean that's what I did in the American life all those riffs that we did in that a lot of times they are just part of the open tuning that's just how I wrote oh that's right it was a lot easier because there was there was so many pull off you know how you can do a really easy pull off riff if the song just happens to fall in the key of the open note that you're playing. (laughs) Yeah, That always makes things so much easier. And I mean, these guys are, they're great guitarists, but I feel like Justin, at this point, he wasn't a virtuoso yet. Maybe he was.
1: I think he was probably, I know some of the guys went, I think maybe Justin and Chris did like online Berkeley music classes and stuff. I don't know if at this time they did that, but I mean, yeah, dude, he, his, I guess the guitar parts between this album and then their follow-up record, it's crazy the amount of musicianship, not that they were bad musicians, obviously, but it was just like next level, like, whoa, there's like shredding on this. And I, I think, They probably just nerded out on, let's learn more music theory.
0: I can imagine they're music theory nerds and things like that. But they seem like cool dudes at the same time. They seem pretty level-headed at this point now. They might have been drinking their own Kool-Aid a little bit back then. Yeah. What do you think of Cove's vocals on this record?
1: Dude, I think I still use this album as kind of like a reference just overall, just I guess mix-wise and also just kind of, I guess like setting the standard, I guess. I don't know. But his vocals, most notably on voices, I feel like that really showcases like his soft side as well as his really powerful side. And then Howard Benson and just his production as far as the layering of harmonies and all that stuff. I know Chris, I think all of them sang minus like Alex, I think all of them sang some backup vocals. I know you can tell like Chris on the uh softer bridge part of voices, you can kinda hear him singing harmonies and stuff. But yeah, Cove's voice, man, I think really just thinking back when I first listened to it and how I still listen to it it's just impressive especially to sing so high and at a time where like auto-tune wasn't really much of a thing it was it was but it wasn't like it is now where you could go in and fix stuff a lot more and, and like you can now at the time I'm sure that there was very little tuning of course some tuning but super impressive with what he was able to Achieve just from a vocal range standpoint, but also just the execution and the performances are just so memorable. I don't know. I guess the best way to describe it is it's just very deliberate. Everything, just with like a fine tooth comb, it seems like the attention to detail on all aspects, vocally, and I guess just overall with the album, it, you can tell everything was very deliberate. But yeah, I think his performances are just super incredible on this.
0: Yeah, every song's good. You can tell every song is thoughtful, every melody was thought out. Probably a lot. (laughs) They, They may have been beating their heads against the wall a little bit on some of these songs, just trying to come up with the catchiest and most thoughtful melodies. They do a good job, too, of this album's not very wordy. Yeah. It's almost like because the drums and the guitars and the songs themselves have so much going on that a lot of the vocal melodies, they don't really stuff the vocal melodies with tons of words, which I kind of appreciate. It's kind of nice to have. Yeah. Vocal melodies to just kind of breathe. I think there's really only one song. Is it maybe some sense of security? It's the verse, or it might be Collapse. That one melody that's do 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 do. I think that's the fastest wordplay melody on the whole record so yeah i like how the vocals just kind of breathe and i think you're right i think howard probably i mean he says so in the making of the record that they really focused on dialing in the vocals and Bo mentions that howard was able to get really good performances out of cove and it almost made me wonder if they struggled when they were demoing Mm -hmm. were they struggling to get good vocal performances out of him because he was so new he was so young i mean he literally He auditioned and then he just jumped into this machine of a band that was already touring and stuff. I think I remember in 2003 seo and rufio did a tour together and they oh, were touring rad. for a long time and i think Saosin was opening up for a lot of people i remember when phil from story of the year filled in for them on dude, Tour. dude i
1: wish i would have seen that that sounds so sick i've seen videos but yeah it, it's it's on youtube yeah Ugh. it's on
0: yeah i've seen videos too i don't think i, I don't think we were on warp tour that year that might have been 2004 that that happened and we only played a couple dates that year but yeah that'd be cool to see he's got a very high registry as well so yeah fit right in but you know I think Howard did a great job of really focusing on the vocals in this particular record and I think that's what they kind of went to him for you know they wanted yeah they wanted that major label sound as far as the vocals were concerned it seemed like they were more concerned about getting the major label production on just the vocals and then allowing everything else to kind of breathe and yeah like, be what they wanted it to be and be them Yeah, great record.
1: I think that has to do a lot also with... I know at the time, you know, everybody still was... You know, there was like a divide and a lot of people were like, no, Anthony Green is the only lead singer Sao should have. (laughs) But I, I feel like it probably was very daunting for cove to come into a band as young as he was and the background that he came from i think he was mormon and so i think i've heard that he was kind of sheltered as a kid so having to be thrown into this like post-hardcore band wow i didn't know that being uh yeah having to step into these big shoes and it's crazy the impact that anthony was only up until their most recent record that was the only ep that anthony was a part of and the fact that even years later people are still like you know Cove or or Anthony and that being part of the discussion but I think mentally going into this record I'm sure Cove was like shit (laughs) I've got some big shoes to fill and if we're on a major label like I've got a big fan base to fill and I know I've heard interviews of Cove talking about a little bit about that and I know that he was before he was in Seosin he was a huge huge fan I think he described himself as like their number one fan and so I think being able to be a part of a band that you love so much and then that you look up to and then having to hold yourself in the, sh- in the shadow I guess of somebody else that you look up to it has got to be a huge obstacle so but I think once he probably heard back this album was like dude he's like I got this and I feel like that shows on their second record. I know some people don't really care for it, but I feel like you can just hear a, a different side of him, more more conviction, I guess, more confidence, just in terms of songwriting. Because you can tell, like everything on this record is just very like fast for the most part. I think you're you're not alone, and I've never wanted to are the only ones that are like relatively different tempos. And the second record, In Search of Solid Ground, has a lot more SoCal kind of more chill almost like incubus kind of stuff so i think they once they got to their second record they kind of had had more uh, more confidence as far as being able to try different things but yeah enough of that tangent <laughs> no that was good this is great I
0: love hearing your thoughts on this because I'm kind of in agreement with you on a lot of this stuff, but this is kind of a side tangent, but have you heard Cove's interviews with Shane from Silverstein on the lead singer syndrome?
1: I think I heard, cause I think Cove had like a two episode thing with him. I heard yep. the first episode and I, I don't think I ever heard the, the second one.
0: It's worth listening to both of those. It's really fascinating his take. And then to listen to Anthony Green's take, because I think Shane had him on his show maybe a couple weeks earlier or oh cool a couple weeks after or something. But it's interesting to hear their takes on their time in Seos both of them. And you're right, it's crazy that translating the name, for all intents and purposes, it was three songs. Yeah. For it to generate that much hype over an album that wouldn't be the follow up for at least three years after that. It's pretty incredible. Just the impact that that had on the scene of music and underground music, because I think they probably toured on those three songs for at least two years. So yeah, I think Cove definitely was probably thinking he had some big shoes to fill. And I want to hear your thoughts on this too. I think Cove struggled live a little bit. Yeah with his vocal delivery. And that may have just been lack of experience, really. Because I do think he's a great singer, but I think he struggled live. I saw him a couple yeah. times after they released the self-title. It's funny. I saw him come through. They played El Torreon with Amberlin, Acceptance, Terminal. Yeah, and Seosin. And Code 5 or something. I can't remember the name of the opening band. but
1: Dude, that's a sick lineup. It was a
0: crazy tour. Yeah, it was insane. They played El Torreon. And Seosin headlined. And their record hadn't even come out yet. That's so sick. Yeah, it was just insane. They were basically touring on two EPs at that point, and they were headlining over all these bands. And at that point, Amberlin had just released Never Take Friendship Personal, their highest-selling record. Yeah. So kind of incredible the staying power that the anthony green ep had leading into the self-titled i do think cove did struggle a little bit live i don't know if you remember seeing him live after this record came out i'm wondering if maybe he just needed some help with warming up his vocals before because he seems to have relatively good pitch but i think sometimes he would get out there and maybe it was just the fact that it was so loud and a lot of the bands that i loved there was always sort of a growing period where they might have in ears that they're not accustomed to or they're just not accustomed to singing for six weeks in a row and really taking care of their vocal yeah. cords the way they need to. Because it's a difficult thing. You know, there's so many people they don't recognize. A lot of times you see your favorite band on TV and they might sound really good or they might sound really bad, but you don't know how long they've been on tour before that. You know, so their vocal yeah. cords just might be thrashed at that point. And then they're having to sing on a very unforgiving format, which is TV, where they can just isolate the vocals and not tune them and not really mix them all that well. And then yeah. just kind of lamb on top of the mix and everybody's like oh that band sounds like shit live (laughs) (laughs) i mean it's difficult i've been there i've been to the point where you're at the end of a stretch of tour and you're literally losing your voice and you can barely sing and you're just trying to like sing above the music you know i remember when game time was touring we never had we were lucky if we had wedge monitors in front of us that didn't squeal at us but
1: and that's tough
0: yeah. I mean, what are your thoughts about Cove Live? Do you remember seeing him and remembering his vocal performance? Do you think he struggled at all with some of these songs?
1: So I actually never, I only saw them uh, with Cove once. I never saw them during the rotation of Self Titled, which is crazy. <laughs> but I saw them at Warp Tour. I think this was the last Warp Tour that they did with. Cove. It was like two thousand nine, two thousand eight, maybe. And I felt like he sounded pretty good at like at that spot. But I've totally heard videos and all that stuff on on YouTube of him, and it's pretty rough. But from what I know from podcasts and stuff, I guess he just didn't really take care of his voice super well. Just I think I heard in a, a podcast with Bo that he would come in to do vocals for a recording, and then would drink like caramel macchiato beforehand. And it's like, well, you probably shouldn't do that. But yeah, I think. Right?
0: <laughs> Wait, you're saying hot milk before a vocal performance is not a good idea? Who, who would have thought?
1: <laughs> but yeah, just kind of, I guess, that kind of naivety of not knowing, oh, I probably shouldn't do that. I think that probably came with age. But then I think, you know, you hear stories about a bunch of vocalists. I know, uh, like, Gerard Way, you can hear, like, his vocal performance on Three Cheers for Sweet Revenge, also a Howard Benson album. The difference between that and... Welcome to the Black Parade. He, you know, got clean in between those two records. And I think that's a great example of like taking care of yourself can really, you know, make a huge impact. So I think it was just a matter of he just didn't didn't know, didn't have the knowledge of like, oh, I should probably like drink a lot of water and and do all that days before I perform or, you know, maybe not drink heavily of alcohol. I don't know. I don't know if that was a thing for him, but all those things that can dehydrate you. That's super crucial to putting forth a good vocal performance because that's where all the dehydration starts is all the areas like your vocal cords and all that stuff. Yeah,
0: and you know, I'm sure he was going through a lot.
1: Sure, yeah, totally.
0: I want to give him some grace. I want to kind of keep this positive too. At the same time. <laughs> I mean, I, I I really love this record and of course he came in, he had some big shoes to fill. I remember meeting him at that Amberlin show and he seemed like a very, very nice person, so I don't want to totally dog him or anything. Oh,
1: no, totally. I've
0: had just awful shows before where my voice is just running out. I also I heard that he, I think he took up smoking and he kind of regret that maybe that wasn't the best move as far as taking care of your your vocal cords sure. but when you're young and you're and like you said you're naive and you're not really sure what you're supposed to be doing and you're trying to act the part of rockstar frontman yeah. You're going to be influenced by all sorts of things and all sorts of people and groups of people that are coming your way. I'm sure it was difficult to navigate being a mid 20 something. Oh, totally. I lost my mind in my late 20s. You know, like I didn't really recover until my very late 20s into my 30s. That's when I really started establishing who I wanted to be and who I ultimately hope to become. It's so when I establish my value system. And I'm sure he was going through the same thing. And that may be why he's more comfortable forming a band now because he knows what he stands for. Totally. And it seems like his new band, Dead American, they're making a statement. Even oh, if, totally. If it's more artistic versus literal in the sense of the statement that they're making, it seems like he's had some time to really be introspective and reflect yeah. on who he wants to be how he wants to show up in the world and it's really fascinating to hear him talk about those times because i like the fact that he talks fondly about them and that he's still a fan of the band and he still supports the band and dead american i think they opened the last seosin tour which is kind of cool i'm sure yeah had him come up and sing some songs and stuff so you never know maybe we'll get 10 year or 20 year tour of this record i'd, I'd go to see that
1: i would totally pay good money for that And let me also say that I doubt Cove would ever hear this podcast, but I totally think that he is still an incredible vocalist. I think just the times, like you said, like whatever he was going through probably contributed so much more to his vocal performance live than his actual ability, because obviously. The dude rips.
0: Yeah. And there's something to be said for he sang on a major label record that sold, is going to eventually sell a million records, even after the era of illegal downloading in the early 2000s. So nothing to sneeze at. He definitely made a dent in popular culture and definitely in the scene with this record. So it's a, it's a fun one to go back to. And a good time capsule record when you think of what was really kind of dominating the scene at that point where you had kind of aggressive darker but catchy at the same time post-hardcore music with these really anthemic choruses and these really catchy melodies and vocals so it's a great record and i'm glad it exists this has been a really fun convo it's already gone an hour yeah dude yeah <laughs> i have to bolt at 12 30 i have to work because I'm, I'm training somebody at 1 30 but cool i want to talk to you a little bit about you the way way back just released their ep and it sounds incredible well done man you did an awesome job
1: Dude, thanks, man. Thank you. Yeah, they worked. They worked super hard on that. I worked very hard on that as well. I probably logged a lot of hours and blood, sweat and tears into that. But yeah, man, I'm, I'm stoked you like it. And from what I've heard, people are digging it. So yeah, I'm super proud of it.
0: And they've already got a few extra thousand streams under their belt on Spotify. So people are definitely listening. Oh, heck yeah. Ben is a very good job at prolifically promoting. I think he does a good job. He probably thinks he does it too much, but I actually don't think. I don't think so. I think he, I would agree. he does a good job of getting people's attention. And that's what you have to do. You have to sell yourself. You have to sell your product, which is whatever it is that you're doing. Totally. And you have to put yourself out there. You have to be willing to put yourself out there. You almost have to be willing to get to that line where you're almost annoying people. Now, I don't necessarily think you need to go over that line. I don't think you need to be (laughs) obsessively aggressive when it comes to promoting what it is that you're doing. But I think he does a good job of just letting people know what's up. Because that's the thing. People just have busy lives and they don't necessarily know what's happening unless they see it a couple times or they see it a few times. And so it's clearly working because for an unsigned local band and that's not to be disparaging to the way way back. They just signed a record deal, which is cool. But I think obviously he did a good job of promoting it to the point where people are checking it out and listening to it. It sounds great. Do you have a favorite song on that EP?
1: Mm, I For sure, Bad Star. I remember listening to that song at a show and be like, dude, if you guys don't let me record your next EP or at least that song, I'm going to be super bummed. <laughs> uh, but Bad Star, I love that song. Chills, dude. What's another one? I would say... Maybe Waste Away or I'm Not Afraid to Walk This World Alone. Actually, uh, I'm Not Afraid to Walk This World Alone, little tidbit, I guess. Caleb and I, from the way, way back, were originally going to try and start a new band at the time that What A Wreck started. And that song was a song that we were working on. And so when we were working on this EP, they're like, dude, we're going to use that song that you guys were working on. I was like, what? That's so sick. And their working title for it was Not A Wreck, but Ben (laughs) did way better on that song than I could have ever dreamed of. That song is so good. I would say probably I'm Not Afraid to Walk This World Alone and Bad Star are probably my two favorites on that.
0: Cool. Yeah, they're great. Bad Star, I remember the first time I heard it, and I heard it late. I literally heard it in the sequence of the EP because I listened to it after it came out a couple weeks ago. Oh, cool. And I was actually at work and I was just kind of working out. That tends to be the time that I listen to music these days. It legitimately gave me those music feeling chills just listening to the words. You can tell he spent some time being very thoughtful about those lyrics. Oh, totally. Obviously something very personal that happened to him, but you can really feel it. And I think it comes through in the recording too. The recording could have been very bare bones and it would have, it would have had that gravitas, but I don't know if it would have had all the gravitas just with the fact that it's like a a fully produced song. You guys layered a lot of stuff on it and totally. It definitely builds. That was a good decision on your part as the producer and then their part as the band. Thank you. And it's a great song. It really is. It hits home. I definitely dig Pages too. That chorus just gets stuck in my oh, head. Oh, yeah, it's dude. It's a really good one. Yeah.
1: That solo is ripping. Yeah, great So stuff. good.
0: What all did you guys use to record that?
1: pages or just the, or just the, the EP. EP in
0: general what sort of amps do you do everything in the box all the guitars and stuff
1: so it, what's crazy is with COVID it kind of changed how we did stuff or at least the plans I remember we originally met up it was probably about this time last year talking about the EP because we had tracked Bad Star in May of last year but but yeah so originally the plan was Caleb has a really awesome setup he's got a triple rectifier I believe Mesa oversized cab like really nice setup and then he's got Tom DeLonge strats and all that. So the original plan was to do to mic it up and have him be in the room with it and have it be a very like visceral kind of thing. But because of COVID and kind of just time constraints and all that stuff, we did it all amp sims. I used a bias, bias amp for that, which is by a company called Positive Grid. So that was all just DI and just amp sims. And then also because of COVID, also kudos to Matt, who the drummer Of The Way Way Back He So literally It was like The 22nd of March We had plans To track drums And then of course The lockdown happened On the 24th So we ended up canceling tracking drums at my place and matt tracked all the drums i sent him like youtube videos of like okay so set up the mics like this <laughs> and uh wow. when you yeah when you set up the session kind of do this and whatnot and he was super awesome with all my craziness of <laughs> trying to get things good from the source and all that stuff but he did a really great job having to do that
0: that's cool so those are real drums
1: those are real drums you walked him
0: through it. Yep. and then he sent you the raw tracks and you mixed them
1: yep and there were a couple times where i'd have to be like hey can you move the room mics because this one sounds a little weird and all that stuff but he he championed it he did a really great job
0: dude that's kick-ass man yeah, man. I got to give you kudos for just being patient enough to do that. Like, oh, totally. I remember watching Zach Odom and Kenneth Mount when we went to record with them, setting up their drums and their mics. And they pretty much had everything set up the way they wanted to. Mm-hmm. And they still were so meticulous and so detail-oriented when it came to how they mic'd things, where they put the room mics, tuning the drums, getting the performance. So... I mean damn dude kudos to you for literally walking a drummer through that it's pretty kick ass thank you (laughs) because you've given him a skill that he can now use for later recordings if he wants to totally
1: and yeah I gave him some mics some extra mics because he has a pretty good setup and I was like do it like this if you can and we'll just try and do our best to to make this as as good as we can I feel like the final product really speaks for itself but yeah the, Yeah, the drums sound killer the things were against us with COVID and then we made the best of it and it's awesome you know knowing the challenges and everything that kind of went into making it. It's awesome that it's being really well received, which is you can't want anything more than that, which is awesome.
0: Yeah, you can't beat it. And I think it speaks to the nature of you becoming a producer. I want you to be a prolific producer. I want people to come to you for production. I think you're just as good as anybody else. You've got the ear for it. It's just really about... It's just about honing in your process, right? I mean, you know this as well as anybody. Totally. I've watched you do this now for years. You've spent years, and that's why you're going to be considerably ahead of the game compared to a lot of people who are doing recordings in their house. Because you're in your house right now, your studio. I am. That's not a separate part of your house or anything? It's not. I love your studio, by the way. Thank you. (laughs) It's a work in progress
1: always. Yeah, so I've got my main control room that I'm in right now where most of the tracking happens, and then I've got a room about 20 feet 25 feet away where drum tracking and all that stuff takes place so fairly modest setup i guess i think fairly
0: modest setups are really all you need at this point and they're just going to get more and more modest so i think that's completely fine and like you said it's like crafting a song you can spend a lot of time perfecting it it's your safe space too yeah for lack of a better term that's like your your fortress of solitude so you can vibe it yeah and get it set up however you want and spend as much time. And I would imagine that's pretty fun. People who like decorating homes and things like yeah, that. But.
1: I try to make it as official feeling. You know, when you come in, it feels like a studio. But then it also feels very quaint and just very homey. So that's always kind of been my goal. Absolutely,
0: man. Tell me about What a Wreck. What are the updates on What a Wreck? You guys have some covers, some standalone tracks. Yeah. The acoustic EP and then the first EP that you guys put out. Yeah. Back when you played with Story of the Year a couple years ago. Mm-hmm. Do you have any updates as far as new songs? or? Yeah,
1: so it's kind of funny, we had plans to release stuff a couple times now, about three times now, and things have kind of come in the way. Yeah, after we played with Story of the Year, we had plans to release a new EP and do all that stuff, and we were actually in talks with a label, trying to negotiate that, and then also we were considering going somewhere and recording somewhere else, so that was kind of something up in the air that ultimately didn't work out, and so we just kind of sat on some songs and kind of refined them. I've got probably about four, five songs, maybe. Some maybe not fully complete and others that are pretty close to completion. And so different things, outside things kind of got in the way. And then, of course, COVID, I was telling a bunch of close friends, I was like, yeah, we're probably going to release something this summer. And then COVID happened and it was like, well, maybe we shouldn't release stuff with everything going on, kind of get lost in the noise. And also just, you know, other people are focusing on more important things. But yeah, we're doing, so the first EP was kind of, we're still a two-piece band and, trying to have both the rock side of things and then like kind of the electronic kind of side of stuff. We're kind of stretching that to more extremes with the new stuff, doing stuff that's more just rock and no synth and other things that are very kind of synth based and kind of more programmed, I guess, sounding. Cool. But it's cool. Hopefully we'll have something somewhat soon, but I don't know. We'll we'll just have to <laughs> see how the, the year pans out and everything.
0: I hope so. And I mean that. I want to hear more Kyle Ward music. I'm a fan of you and your music. I think it's good to be thoughtful. I think you're right in being thoughtful about what you want to release when you want to release it. But I think there it could go one of two ways. I mean, you could release a couple singles and it might be something that people really, really need right now. Yeah, true. You know? As somebody who's seen release protocols change so much over the last 20 years. Yeah. And it'll just continue changing. I think that's one of the cool things about art is the nature of distributing is always changing. There may be times where it makes more sense to release one body of work at one time. And there may be times where it makes more sense to intersperse artworks here and there by releasing singles, maybe one a month or one every couple of months or something, and really hyping them up and having people pre-save them on Spotify and trying to create whatever pieces of content that can accompany them. Because kind of going back to what I was saying about some of these rappers or emo rappers, which I'm still trying to figure out exactly what emo rappers even means, because to me, it just <laughs> a lot of it sounds like Post Malone. Okay, so a lot of Post Malones you know yeah kind of like blending hip-hop and pop music essentially like top 40 I'm not saying you have to release stuff like that but I appreciate the fact that they're so prolific because it's kind of like what you were saying earlier COVID is a constraint but sometimes the best art is made because of constraints you know I think oh of absolutely who are, yeah I think of people who are under the gun when they have to write a book and all of a sudden their editors like you've got three months so you better produce something and then all of a sudden they write their magnum opus or their masterpiece yeah I think sometimes constraints can be good and scheduling things can be good. I don't know. Just something to think about.
1: Yeah, totally. You know, like I think time is- I'm my worst critic, I guess.
0: Yeah, I I definitely feel you there. We're all our own worst critic, right? and time is the one non-renewable resource once it's gone it's gone forever you're a thoughtful guy and i appreciate that i do i appreciate people that are intentional with their art and intentional with their lives yeah <laughs> and i know for me i can be a bit of a perfectionist so it's difficult for me to release things into the world without really diving into it head first and trying to perfect it and sometimes i have to really let go of that i have to really just take a step back totally For my own perfections because sometimes the perfection is just another resistance type you know that I have to fight yeah
1: at some point something's got to be done
0: yeah absolutely I've run into that so many times but yeah man are there any other things that you'd like to tell the listeners
1: listen to the have a blast podcast because it's rad thank you
0: (laughs) And hopefully they're listening to it right now. Otherwise, they're probably having a psychotic
1: episode. (laughs) And be like, what's happening right now? Dude, yeah. Thank you for having me on. This has been fun. I never thought I would get to nerd out and talk about one of my favorite albums and with people that appreciate it, (laughs) hopefully. So
0: of course, dude, dude, I love talking about this stuff. And I absolutely love listening to people talk about this stuff. One of the cool things about COVID is there's been all these music podcasts that have kind of popped up out of nowhere. I'm going back and listening to the episodes. Some have more. Totally obviously but man, i really like talking about this stuff and i've always had fun talking to my friends about this stuff so i really appreciate you coming on and talking about an album that means so much to you because i have a lot of really fond memories with this album and this band in general too and i hope we get more new sales and i think Bo has been kind of teasing instrumental demos and stuff i know it's killing me yeah and you know (laughs) it would be cool if they did some stuff with cove i don't know what's stopping them really like why wouldn't you yeah Because Anthony's so busy with Circo. Why wouldn't you just say, okay, we're going to do five songs with Cove again because why not? We're not touring right now. We may as well.
1: I think I saw like before their shows that they had with Dead American and everything, Cove's Cove's new band, I think I saw that they were demoing or doing... I think I saw that their planning to re-release translating the name and i think like the gray ep or something so they might do something where they release like a amalgamation of you know both cove and anthony maybe that would be cool maybe i don't know it's like
0: van halen remember when van halen released the best of and they had songs from both sammy hagar and david leroy yeah i'm sure nobody ever thought that in a million years that was gonna happen but for whatever reason it happened and it wasn't that cool honestly so hopefully (laughs) Hopefully, Salesins is a little bit better because I remember the songs that David Lee Roth did in the mid '90s were not good. But <laughs> I love you, Van Halen. I'm I'm not talking disparagingly. <laughs> r.i.p but yeah it'd be rad and i'd totally listen to it and why not there's no rules to this whole art thing so totally i really appreciate you coming on and chatting with me and we can do this again if you if there's an album you want to dive deep on and you want to have a conversation or something about it hit me up and we'll we'll definitely make it happen totally either way i'm gonna be stoked to hear what you have in store next and i hope we can nerd out and have a conversation about it at some point totally
1: man Yeah, well, dude, thank you.
0: Yeah, dude, of course, man, thank you. Have a great rest of your day. We'll talk soon, okay?
1: You as well, man. Have a good rest of your day as well. Thanks, man. Take care, buddy. All right, bye.